it's so great to be back. It's been a little while. Last time I was here in the building, 2018. So I like you guys. You know that? And I don't say that to the other church that I speak at. Like, I, <laughs> no, I really like you guys. So thank you for having me back. Thank you for being here today. Um, yeah, like, thank you for that introduction, by the way. I've been so blessed for the, for the last decade. All I've been really doing is traveling full-time as a speaker. Um, it's been fun. Saying that, COVID kind of got in the way a little bit, let's be honest. It's hard to travel and be with people when you're not allowed to actually be around people or travel. But, <laughs> but here we are. We made it. Um, I'm going to pray and then maybe do something semi-productive, Okay. That's why we're going to pray. Lord God, here we are. Seriously, Sunday morning. Thank you so much for every person here. No one forced anyone to come to church today. Well, maybe the children. But other than that, Lord, in this room, <laughs> we all made a very intentional decision to be here. So thank you. Lord, my hope is in some way, shape, or form that you can speak to all of us. It doesn't matter if we are the youngest person in the room or the oldest. So however you speak, however you will speak, we give you permission to do that. Lord, I pray for myself. I need wisdom. I need clarity. I need your power. Help me. And may you get the glory, not me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a storyteller. Can I tell a story? Thank you. If you said no, I'm not sure what I would have done. Start praying again. <laughs> I'm going to close in prayer. <laughs> you <don't know. laughs> so I'm a Toronto boy, and if you know anything about Toronto, it's impossible to buy a home there. So now I live in London, Ontario. I moved there like 2008 when we met. And over the years, I was able to buy a home. Now, here's one thing I do not like about owning a home. Taking care of it. Cleaning, not my thing. Doing repairs, not my thing. Cutting the lawn, not my thing. But you kind of have to do it. So two summers ago in August, just after lunchtime, I'm like, fine, I'll be, you know, mature. I'll go cut the lawn. Now, when I go cut the lawn, before I actually start cutting, I walk around and kind of assess my property, make sure, you know, you know there's nothing broken or maybe there's no random garbage on the yard. You know, I'm trying to figure out what I need to clean up so I can cut the lawn. Now, everyone here is like, oh, obviously, we're from the country. We understand how to cut a lawn. <laughs> I'm from Toronto. We had no idea, you know, we're mowing concrete. True story. So I go outside, and on the edge of my property, just over here, there's this beautiful gray cat just laying on my front yard. Here's a picture of a cat. Any cat lovers? Now, I'm an, an, I'm an animal guy. I love every animal except for mice. I don't like mice, but everything else, I love it. So anytime I see a dog, anytime I see a cat, a goat, whatever animal it is, I gravitate towards them. So I see a beautiful gray cat laying on my front yard. 
So before I cut the lawn, I'm thinking, let's go pet the cat, you know. So I started approaching it. As I got a little closer, I'm like, oh, this cat must really be tired because it's just laying there like it's really asleep. <laughs> and then, then I get a little closer. And I start seeing some flies hovering around. I'm not a vet. That doesn't seem like a good sign. Now, where are my cat lovers again? Right here? Listen, I got good news. The cat lives, okay? Before you freak out, the cat lives in heaven because that cat, it was totally dead, okay? Now, I'm not from the country. I don't know how to handle this situation. So I'm looking at this gray cat, and I'm like, oh, no, I've seen that cat before. It belonged to my next-door neighbor, so now I have this internal thought, do I be, you know, a mature human being and maybe go tell her the cat died? Or do I be a very immature human being and just like, you know, just throw it on her yard and run away? <laughs> so I did the mature thing, okay? I am going to tell her the cat died. I'm trying to like work out like an ice-breaking conversation before I break the news. Like, what do you do in that situation? Ask for her favorite color? What if she said gray? Like, how awkward would that be? Oh, goodness. Like, go over to her house. I'm not making this up. I felt so nervous. I knock on the door. I'm like, oh, Janet, I'm so sorry. Like, I think your cat died. I poked it with a stick, and it didn't move. And I'm like apologizing. I actually feel horrible. I'm also Canadian, which means we always apologize. And she starts crying. And she says, can I go look at the body? I'm like, That's a weird thing to say, but okay. She puts her shoes on. She walks over to my property. And as she approaches the cat, she, again, she's crying. She kind of like, you know, panicking like anyone would. And then she like approaches it, and she stops maybe 15 feet away, and she like has this very confused look on her face. And then she walks a few steps closer, and then she goes, "That's not my cat." I'm like, "No! I told the wrong person her cat died." And she's like, "I'm gonna run inside and find my cat." She goes inside, and three minutes later, she comes out with a gray cat. In my defense, it looked identical to the cat on my yard. And she's prating it around. Like, now you're just boasting. Your cat's alive. So she goes inside. Now I'm left with a this cat, a, new, a dead cat still on my front yard. So I call the city of London. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, excuse me, city. I have a dead cat on my front yard. What do I do with it? And the, and the lady on the phone said, if the cat is on city property, we will take care of it. Well, I'm stupid, so I'm just like, well, it's not on city property, it's on my front yard. She repeats again, if the cat is on city property, and I'm telling her again, I'm not, as bright, I'm not a very bright man, as you can tell. I'm like, no, no, I told you, it's on my front yard, it's on the grass, it's not on city property. She says it one more time. If the cat is on city property, we will take care of it. And then I go on the phone, oh, so if I throw the cat onto the road, 
you will take care of it. And all she said one more time, if the cat is on city property, we will take care of it. I'm like, this is an answer to prayer. Thank God. I hang up the phone. Now it's like 2 p.m. And here's my fear. My fear was to take the cat and just like, you know, throw it on the road. And in my life, the kids in the neighborhood would watch this. And I don't want to be like the creepy neighbor throwing dead animals onto the side, you know, the, the road. So I'm thinking, I'll wait until nighttime where no one sees me. I don't know why this is how I process life, but it made sense at the time. But I did not want the beautiful cat to just lay there. So I put it in a bag, and then I, then I put it in my recycling box. For some reason, I thought that was better than the garbage can. I don't know why. I am not making this story up. 25 minutes later, knock on the door. This young married couple. Excuse me, we can't find our gray cat. Have you seen it anywhere? I'm just like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I had, first of all, the, telling the wrong person their cat died, that's embarrassing. Now I'm trying to tell this person, yeah, your cat is in my recycling box. <laughs> it takes a lot to get me embarrassed. That was like the most embarrassing 25 minutes of my life. So I tell this lady, like, hey, can you identify the body? Because I made a mistake 25 minutes ago. So I get the bag out of, out of the recycling I hand it to her, and she, like, you know, lays on my front lawn. She pulls the cat out of the bag. It was her cat. She starts petting it. And I remember this. She looks up at me, and she goes, why did this happen? Now, for a moment, I thought she was blaming me, just to be honest. I thought what she was really saying is, why did you kill my cat? (laughs) I had nothing to do with it. But I remember, I remember that moment, like literally her looking in me, at my eyes, into my eyes. Why did this happen? Have you ever had that thought or that question when something doesn't go right in your own life? When you go through trouble, when you go through a junky circumstance, you look up to God, why did this happen? I'm not, I'm not sure what this is in your life. Maybe it's health issues. God, why did this happen? Maybe you lost a loved one. God, why did this happen? Maybe your marriage did not work out. God, why did this happen? Maybe you lost your job or went through some big financial challenges over the last two years. God, why did this happen? Over my 18 years of doing ministry, I can't tell you how many people have have pulled me aside when I do talks or messaged me online or emailed me and shared their junky situation, shared the trouble and the hard times they are in or went through and say, Mike, why did it happen? But then on a personal level, on my, in my own life, I'm human. When life gets hard, I had the same question over and over and over. God, why did this happen? Now that's a great question to ask. Here's the problem with that question. You might not get an answer. And that's hard for a lot of people. Because there are some people out there 
who might say, until I get an answer, I'm going to step back from God right now. I'm going to stop praying. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'll stop worshiping. I might not show up to church every Sunday until I understand why this junky situation happened to me. Now, when people come up to me and ask that big question, why did it happen? Do you know what my honest answer is? I don't know. And I've studied the Bible. I have eight years of post-secondary education. I am an ordained pastor. I preach over 2,500 times, which means I work my way through the Bible. And my answer every single time is, I don't know. I don't know why your marriage didn't work out. I don't know why you lost that loved one at a young age. I don't know. That's my honest answer. Now, the question I have is, if the answer to that question is, I don't know, can you still trust God? Can you still follow God? Can you still pursue him without getting the answer to that big question, why did this happen? Now, there's a weird story. Not a weird story. That's not a good way to set it up. There's a great story in the Bible. <laughs> And the story is really cool because you really can take it and go a hundred different directions. But I'm going to point out just a few little things and, you know, we'll come to an end at some point. So we'll throw the scripture on the screen. Do we have a screen? Do we have a screen? I'm confused. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> I had a moment, like, I'm pretty sure I was looking at lyrics earlier for worship. <laughs> So this scripture we're reading, it's found in Mark, like this actual story, but the story is also found in Matthew and in the book of Luke. So three out of four Gospels, we see this story. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. Maybe today is your first time in church, or maybe you're brand new to the church experience, and you're learning each Bible story every single week for the first time, and if that is you, that is awesome. I'm so glad you're here. So I'm weird, so we'll do one slide at a time. I like a little interaction, okay? I am going to say one, two, three, ready, read, and we will read this one slide on the screen. Is that awkward? Of course, that's why we're doing it, okay? One, two, three, ready, read. Oh, yeah, we'll stay, at the other, we'll stay at the other slide. Oh, oh yeah, we'll stay there for now. By the way, was that fun? <laughs> My adrenaline pumping after reading that one. <laughs> so Jesus. Now here's the thing. We are in 2022. If we have had the luxury to read the Bible, we know Jesus, the Messiah. At this point in the story, many people in that culture did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. It was typically Jesus the teacher, Jesus the rabbi. And he's going around doing these teachings, and as he's doing these really profound teachings, 
but got people's attention. He's also healing people and doing miracles and doing all these really cool things, which obviously attracts the crowd. Obviously, word gets out that here's some rabbi, some teacher going around and people are being healed. Well, when you hear that stuff, it's very common when you hear that Jesus is coming to your area. Well, I'm going to go visit. I want to see what it's all about. Or maybe I know someone who is sick, who needs healing, who needs help. I'm going to bring them to Jesus. So we see this picture of Jesus, and all of a sudden we have a large crowd. Now, what's a large crowd? I have no idea. A hundred people? A thousand people? Ten thousand people? I know the different parts in the gospel where Jesus is speaking to tens and tens of thousands of people. In this story, I have no idea. But the writer made it very clear to say large crowd, not just a crowd. And I can imagine within that crowd, all these people wanting to see what Jesus is about, there's probably many people going through many hard circumstances, life challenges. And I'm sure in this crowd, the person they're standing beside had no idea what they are dealing with. No different than in this room right now. You might be going through a hard time. You might be going through a junky situation. And as a result of that, maybe you're asking that big question, God, why did this happen? And that might lead to a domino effect in your thought process of maybe doubting God, questioning God. Maybe you're bitter at God. Maybe you're angry. You have no idea what the person beside you right now is going through. No different than this big crowd. Now, there's two people we see in this story. In the midst of their junk and their pain and their hard times, they make a very intentional decision to pursue Jesus. So on the next slide right here, for Abel. Thanks, man. One, two, three, ready, read. Perfect. So imagine the scene with Jesus, tons of people around. Jairus, one of these synagogue leaders. Now, sometimes we mix the synagogue up with like the temple, that they are different. A synagogue, typically, there would have been one in your community or in your town or village. And a synagogue would not just be like the, the religious hub of your town. It was also most likely the political hub, the economical hub, the social hub. This was like the place to be. So when we see the name Jairus, I would assume most people in this crowd knew who he was. Now he's going through his own junk. Because his situation was his daughter, who's 12 years old, is dying. I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm sure in his private life, Jairus is probably crying out to God, why is this happening? It makes no sense. So he takes a step and says he falls at the feet of Jesus. That would have been somewhat humiliating for Jairus. 
that he would have been known as a big religious figure in that community. And here he is at his feet of Jesus, essentially crying out, you need to go fix my daughter. You need to go help my daughter. You need to go heal my daughter. And Jesus' response in that moment is essentially, okie dokie. But what happens now, Jesus and the religious leader, the authority in that town, he goes towards Jairus' home to where the daughter is. And obviously the crowd follows. So as the scripture kind of continues, I jump a little bit around, but the scripture continues here. One, two, three, ready, read. So as they're walking, as they're going towards Jairus' daughter with the large crowd that continue to like, you know, press up against Jesus, like everyone wants to like get close to him, we're introduced to another person going through her, her hard time. And this woman, she, she's been sick for 12 years. And scripture says she's been subject to bleeding. Now, I don't really know what that means. I thought I did until I researched it. <laughs> and I was wrong. And scholars are all over the map. You read different commentaries, they're all over the map on what she was actually suffering from. But whatever it was, it wasn't considered normal. And because she was bleeding in that culture, because of the Hebrew culture, she would have been considered unclean. And when you're unclean, considered unclean in that culture, you're not supposed to just hang out with the crowd. You can't just go to the synagogue. You can't just go to the market. You can't just go to your friend's house. A lot of scholars would say because she was bleeding, she would have been isolated and put in maybe one spot, maybe one room in her home for 12 years. Uh, one commentary says, you know, this is basically like a social death of loneliness. So here's a woman going through a physical challenge, but I can't imagine the emotional and mental challenges that come along with that. And I'm pretty confident, I am making a big assumption, but I am still confident that at some point she would have been like, God, why is this happening and the scripture continues. It says that when she suffered, like she suffered from a great deal of many doctors, and she spent everything she had. Yet she kept getting worse. She grew worse. So in those 12 years, she's probably thinking, if I could just get healed, if I could just get better, if the bleeding can somehow stop, if a doctor can just fix me, then I can go back to a normal life. I can go to the synagogue. I can go to the market. Things will be good. I can hang out with my friends. And she probably put her hope in everything and everyone, and it said she was left even worse. I don't think that was physical. I think that was emotional. She was probably left absolutely hopeless. Is this what the rest of my life is going to look like? God, why is it happening? And the scripture continues. And here's what it says. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. And the next slide, right here. Because she thought, if I just touched his clothes, 
I will be healed. So a couple quick things. She obviously somehow heard Jesus is in the area. For her to be around Jesus, she would have left her home or wherever she was isolated in. She would have broke the Hebrew customs and rules and regulations. And now she's in contact with a crowd. That's a big no-no. There's punishment for that. But in the midst of her pain, she heard about Jesus. And she thought, if I could just touch his cloak, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Time out. That's a little weird, don't you think? Imagine someone like you look up to, like an athlete or like, you know, a musician or someone walked into the building. You're like, if I can just touch his shoes. <laughs> Not say hello, just touch his shoes, you know, like. <laughs> so on a surface level, this is one of those stories you're like, what is going on? She's been isolated a little too long. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. <laughs> if I can just touch his cloak. Now, where would she get that idea from? Well, there's actually a scripture in Malachi chapter 4 that, that actually touches on the Messiah. When he comes, he will have healing powers on the tips of his wings, his clothes, his prayer shawl. The one interesting part, this woman, when she hears about Jesus and sees him, if I can just touch his clothes, Essentially, she's recognizing this Jesus is not just a teacher and a rabbi. This could actually be the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that I learned about maybe as a young kid in the synagogue. If I can just touch his clothes. And she did it. And immediately, the healing, she was healed. Now I can just imagine, because she's again, she's essentially breaking the law. I can imagine her mindset was, if I can just like sneak through, sneak through the crowd and just touch her clothes, his clothes, then I'll maybe retreat. Nobody will see me. Nobody will notice. I'll never get in trouble. It's all good. That's probably maybe her thinking. Well, that's not what happened. What happened is Jesus stops. And for the first time in the scripture, we see Jesus talk. So obviously, this is going to get some attention. So the scripture continues here on the next slide. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. So why is she on the ground in fear? Well, she's not supposed to be in the crowd. There's punishment for that. And the person who had the authority to punish her is the man standing right beside Jesus. That's Jairus. Interesting. And here's Jesus' response. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, here's the one thing I want to pull out of this story. This woman is a real person. 
for whatever reason in her story, God healed her. That might not be the same for all of our stories. But what I want us to focus on is more not the end result, but the steps that Jairus and his woman took in the midst of their junky situation. Notice not one of them approached Jesus and said, Jesus, why is this happening? Why is my daughter dying? Why have I been bleeding and sick for 12 years? Notice not one person asked that question. Notice not one of them said, Jesus, until you tell me why, I'm just going to stay in the crowd and you know, not pursue you, not trust you, not follow. Could you imagine that conversation? Jairus, Jesus saying, yeah, let's go heal your daughter. It's like, actually, Jesus, one second. Why did this happen? Because I'm not going to go until you tell me. Well, that would be a weird response. Which is very interesting. I'm sure they had the why question, but when they were encountering Jesus, they didn't ask the why question. It was, I'm just going to pursue him, period. Despite getting that answer. And the question I have is, in the midst of your junk, in the midst of your hard time, in the midst of your trouble, are you more like Jairus? Are you more like that woman? Despite not knowing why, can you still trust him? Can you still follow him? Can you still pursue him? And yes, when times are good, the answer is always yes. But let's be honest, we are all human. When life gets hard, sometimes our natural response is to step back. I got one more story, then I'm done. Back in July, I'm up in Muskoka. I'm speaking at a camp. I'm speaking to about 200 leaders for the week before they got ready for camp to kick off. And around that same time, my dad, who lives in Toronto, um, he had like some little medical issue with ulcers. And after a few appointments with the doctor, they thought, hey, you know, let's clean this up. We can fix this. Let's go in for a pretty basic surgery. And he was quite young, and, you know, so it all seemed good. It made sense. No fear, no, you know, no fear of complications. Like, should be somewhat in and out, somewhat. So when I'm up there in Muskoka, he goes up, goes in for surgery on a Monday. Monday evening, one of my sisters messages me, and she's like, yeah, like, the surgery went well, but, like, he's not really recovering. Like, I still have him, like, on a ventilator and machines, and so hopefully tomorrow he'll be strong enough to recover, and we'll take him off, and everything will be good. He'll be home in a day or two. The following day, Tuesday, get another update, like, yeah, like, we, he's on life support. Like, what? <laughs> For a basic surgery? Like, he's young, like, what? A few days later, while I'm still out there speaking, she sends me a message. We need to make a decision. The doctor's saying if we take him off life support at this point, he might have a 20% chance to live. What? <laughs> and my human response, honestly, for those few days is, God, why is this happening? It makes no sense. Life support, 20% chance to live? And I kept asking that question over and over. Why, why, why? 
And here I am, I start texting some of my friends and some people in ministry, just going, hey, like prayer requests. So a couple of days later, we made that decision. A couple of days later, we made that decision. Let's take him off life support and let's hope these prayers are answered. So I drive to Toronto and I'm by his side, you know, in ICU. We said our goodbyes. The doctor said, say your goodbyes. We'll, you know, take him off life support and we'll see what he does. So around 5 p.m., we take him off life support. Around 5.30, he starts regaining consciousness. And the doctor said, look out for these signs. If he starts swallowing, he starts coughing, he starts breathing like heavily, like those are actually good things. Those are good signs he's actually pulling through. So around 5.30, he's like awake for the first time in a while. And he can't talk. We're able to lift his hand, thumbs up, hold your hand, squeeze your hand. He's starting to swallow and cough and breathe. Like all the signs the doctor was saying are good. And we're like, oh, this is a miracle. An hour later, he dies. What? God, why did this happen? And I sat by his body for about two hours by myself, just trying to make sense of that question. And I'll be honest, I never got an answer. To this day, what, 10 months later, whatever, we're in May, by the way, 10 months later, I still have no idea why. But you know what my honest response was in that moment? Lord, I'm going to cancel my whole entire summer speaking. Doing events with Toby Mack, like who cares about Toby? Doing all these other camps, forget it. I don't want to talk about God right now. That was my natural response to step back from God rather than be like Jairus and this woman who's bleeding and press forward and into him. So if you've ever had that same kind of response when life gets hard to step back, I don't want to say you're in good company, but at least you make me feel better about myself. (laughs) I remember I had to be so intentional. Although I felt like stepping back, like, no, 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 I need to step forward. I need to keep pursuing Jesus. I need to keep following him. I need to keep my eyes on him. I need to keep praying. I need to keep reading my Bible. I need to keep preaching. I need to keep going to church. I need to keep doing all those things. And I'm very thankful that I did because a few days later I had the opportunity to officiate my dad's funeral. And I don't have a Christian family. I was able to go up there and share Jesus in that moment. Super cool. But that never would have happened if I went with my feelings and just stepped back from Jesus in the midst of not knowing why this happened. So if you don't know why you went through what you went through, or why you're going through what you're going through, or maybe fast forward a few months, why you might go through what you go through, if you don't know why, that's okay. And it's you, no one else, it's you that needs to take that step forward. When you feel like a bailing on church, you feel like putting your Bible aside, when you feel like you're going to stop praying, it's you that needs to be intentional, like Jairus and this woman, to pursue Jesus and take that step towards him. Easier said than done, I get it. But what's the other alternative? To boycott him? 
Yeah. And maybe some of us, we've done that for a season in our lives, and we know that wasn't the best route to go. So I want to encourage you right now, despite not knowing why this happened, you can still trust God. I'm going to pray. Did I go too long? Okay, good. Awesome. <laughs> Lord, seriously, thank you. And for this moment, thank you for these people. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. Thank you. Now, Lord, I know on a surface level, this is one of those talks where it seems a little cliche. I think we all will say the right answer. When life gets difficult, of course, I'm going to keep pursuing you. <laughs> but it's funny, when life gets hard, how our emotions might might take us a different direction. Sometimes not getting the answer to why did this happen can make us frustrated. It can make us doubt. Maybe we start questioning everything we learned about you in church and in Sunday school growing up. It is easy to step back sometimes when we, when we don't understand now, maybe there's a season in our life where we look back in hindsight, and maybe the hardest time in our life, maybe it begins to make sense. But for some of us, we are not in hindsight. We are in the middle of that pain, in the middle of the heartbreak, in the middle of that junk. Why did this happen? And if we don't get a response, if we never find out why, my hope is we don't let that stop us from continuing to pursue you. That we don't just go with our emotions sometimes and walk away from you and stop with our active Christian life, but we say, no, this is the opportunity where I need you more than ever. And that's a very intentional step we all need to take in those moments. No one can take it for us. So as we see many stories in the Bible, but for this morning in, in this one particular part of the gospel, we see a man, Jairus, going through his hard times. He's not saying, until I get an answer, I'm not pursuing Jesus. No, no, he pursued. We see the woman, same thing. She was not saying, until I understand why I've been sick for 12 years. No, 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 no. When she heard about Jesus, she pursued him as the Messiah. And Lord, you are the Messiah. Your son Jesus literally came to this earth to die for our sins so our relationship with you can be restored. So why would we want to step back from that relationship when things get hard? So help us understand that you are with us. You want to be with us. You, you, you want us to turn to you. You want us to run to you like a child. You want us to know that we, you still love us. You still care for us. You've never given up on anyone here despite maybe feeling like you have. So in this moment, not understanding why, maybe we can understand that we're still loved. And you're still with us. And that we can still trust you. So however you are speaking this morning, Lord, whatever we need to do to take that step forward to pursue you in the midst of our hard times and that big question, why did this happen? Let us be intentional about moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.